people have tried to get rid of me and I don't think they can make it. Lots of them who have tried are lying in the cemetery. How did they die? How are they doing? How did they die? <laughs> Natural causes. This is the Lest We Forget podcast, a historical podcast by Tenement Yard Media. I'm Gabrielle, your host for this episode. This episode is the third in this season's coverage of the people, events, causes and consequences that led to the 1979 Grenadian Revolution, the only successful revolution in the Anglophone Caribbean. In this episode, we examine the 1970s in Grenada, a turbulent period under Eric Gehry's leadership. Date, May 25, 1969. To Mr. Richard Nolt, Executive Director, Institute of Current World Affairs, 535 Fifth Avenue, New York. Dear Mr. Nolt, Grenada will likely be the next serious crisis spot erupting in the Caribbean. For beneath the surface appearance of fast-paced tourist development and in spite of Grenada's image as a mini-state going places, the island is actually in a high state of tension which should be watched during the next six months. This was the beginning of a letter written by Frank MacDonald, renowned journalist and a past fellow at the Institute of Current Affairs who spent the 1960s reporting on Caribbean countries. In the letter addressed to Mr. Richard Nolt, Executive Director of the Institute of Current World Affairs, Mr. MacDonald went into details on how the first few months in Eric Gehry's tenure as Premier of Grenada was a call for concern. Unlike the days of the Squandermania report, Gary had no one to answer to as now, Grenada was an associate state and he took full advantage of this. According to Frank MacDonald, by early 1969, Eric Gary started getting a reputation of selling Grenada to the highest bidder, usually American businessmen. Even more alarming was that Gary was a silent partner in several businesses and part owner of hotels that had been built all over the island. After this, Gary allegedly established a real estate company around himself through which the sale of government lands were mediated. Mr. MacDonald reports that throughout the first few months of his term, Gary received various vehicles from Americans, had an impressive wardrobe which included tailored shirts from New York and several real estate he owned throughout Grenada. Then there were the instances of the misuse of government institutions. In May of 1969, it was reported that Gary, late for an appointment, ordered the island's authorities to let the island's fire station vehicles out so as to escort him, sirens blaring, to his meeting. Then Gary, now the most powerful politician and union leader in Grenada, decided to exercise his power a bit further. His trade union, the Grenada Manual and Mental Workers Union, GMMWU, was the only recognized union in the country. Thus, all employers were required by law to pay Gary and his union five cents per day for each worker in their establishment. What became even more bizarre is any attempt to create any rival union was deemed illegal under the Gary administration. One man who was brave enough to try to organize a separate union for farm workers, a Mr. Pope McLean, was shot at on one occasion 
and his house searched numerous times for guns. This gun search was another matter. A gun act was passed in Grenada's parliament which allowed Gary to search homes and confiscate any weapon belonging to anyone he and the rest of the government deemed a threat. Still, back to the matter of unions on the island. Just like Mr. McLean, other persons were trying to organize workers. A Grenada's farmers union was formed and by May of 1969 was reported to have about 1,800 farmers on its roster. See, the issue is that any rival union would cause five less cents to be allocated to the GMMWU and Gary did not like this. And so, he went on the offensive against this farmers union soon after. Over the radio, he gave this message. It has been brought to my attention that some agricultural employers are openly defying government measures with respect to the payment of wages to the agricultural workers of the state. Fortunately, however, legislation passed by Parliament with respect to wages refers only to a minimum wage structure and if any employer wishes to pay more than the take-home pay of $2.70 and $2.20 for men and women respectively, he may do so. But this has absolutely nothing to do with his obligation to pay another 30 cents in union dues, welfare and pension scheme and bonus. As a matter of fact, steps will be taken to have certain estates pay much more than the minimum established. Times have changed, however, and I am responsible for the police, and here I must give this warning and I give it free, gratis and for nothing. Do not resist the police, for the consequences in accordance with the law of the state might be shockingly serious. Government recognizes the farmers' clubs representing the majority of farmers as non-political, but unfortunately, I cannot say the same thing about the farmers' union. If, therefore, farmers wish to stupidly allow themselves to go down the drain on the pretext that they are adhering to the dictates of any political farmers' union, they must stand the consequence. Now one would expect the Grenada Farmers' Union to respond in the same way and have a broadcast of their own. However, that was not so, for Grenada's sole radio station, the Windward Islands Broadcasting Service, WIBS, was controlled by Gary. So the organization published a pamphlet and distributed it among Grenadians. The pamphlet contained the organization's rebuttal towards Gary and was titled, Considerate a Threat and a Declaration of War on Farmers, and it went like this. The public in Grenada and the people of the other Caribbean countries were treated to a most unusual and unsavory broadcast over WIBS by the Premier of Grenada on 15th, 16th and 17th April. A broadcast which was a shock to our visitors and cause of shame to all well-meaning Grenadians. The Premier's statement is considered all part of his effort to crush opposition in Grenada and by a calculated program of threat injection of fear and divide and rule to subject all Grenada into a one-part, one-union state. It seems Gary got hold of this pamphlet because soon after he went back on the radio to give a counter-attack of the counter-attack of his original attack. Get it straight from the horse's mouth now. There is one, and only one, parliament building in Grenada, and that is at Church Street. And when laws are passed, regardless of your station in life, your color or creed, I can only advise you seriously and solemnly. 
keep the law of the land or you are heading for a lot of trouble. Not only for yourself, but also for your family. Weeks later, four farms were vandalized by unknown persons in the middle of the night. When Mr. MacDonald visited these farms, the owners were supporters of the Grenada National Party GNP and members of the Grenada Farmers Union. This was one of the first real clashes of Gary's tenure as Premier and he did not only put potential unionists on alert of the type of leadership that Grenada would witness moving forward, but everyone else in the country. Then with Gary already exploiting the police force when he announced that his 1969 budget would be 50% more than that of 1967 due to him establishing a defense force, it put people on alert. According to Frank MacDonald, one Grenadian journalist once said to him, I have no gun, I have never used one, but there may soon come a time when I shall be forced to buy and use one. Frank MacDonald, in his 15-page letter, stated that Gary was selling Grenada to the highest bidder, which will eventually leave Grenada in the hands of American developers, who will soon make the decisions in country, and Gary, in his signature white shoes, white trousers and matching jacket, would get his cut of the shear. Mr. MacDonald called this expatriate expropriation. Still, not even Mr. MacDonald could predict how bad it would get come the 1970s, for in Gary's own apparent words, Once white men used to thieve, so why not uncle now? Follow me on a quick side quest. Historically, if there are any two events that tell you the state of a society, they would be Miss World pageants and the Olympic Games. As such, it should come as no surprise that Gary's legacy of the 1970s would start at a Miss World pageant, specifically the 1970 Miss World pageant. The beauty pageant was held in London that year and still stands today as one of the most controversial. For at this Miss World pageant, the two apparent institutions that the establishment upholds, racism and sexism, would take centre stage. The first sound of problems was when the pageant allowed for two South African entries, one black woman and another white, for even a beauty pageant could not face up to South Africa's apartheid. Just a side note, as the late 1970s rolled by, apartheid got even more brutal towards black South Africans as seen by the shooting of school children in Soweto and the continuous state brutality geared toward organizers like Steve Biko and Winnie Mandela. So when South Africa decided to send up two contestants to the 1976 Miss World, a black woman and a white woman, a number of countries boycotted the pageant and did not send a representative. However, one of those countries who boycotted Miss World, Jamaica, ended up winning the 1976 pageant. If you want to learn more about how that happened, check out our Season 2 episode titled Cindy Breakspeare, Michael Manley and Apartheid. Now back to Eric Geary and the 1970 pageant. On the morning of the pageant, November 20, 1970, it is reported that members of the Angry Brigade planted a homemade bomb under one of the BBC's lorries. The bomb went off, waking up residents in the area. However, in the media, this paled in comparison to the other events that happened on that day. 
On the night of the contest, women's liberation activists staged a flower bomb, thus pausing the live broadcast of the event. Now faced with accusations of upholding sexism and the mistreatment of black contestants and accepting black and white South African contestants, which the media had described as whitewashing the apartheid regime, the winners that year were historic and will forever be questioned. The first black Grenadian to ever enter the contest, Jennifer Hosten, was declared the winner, becoming the first black woman to win the contest. To note, some sources have said that Jamaica's Carol Joan Crawford was the first black woman to win. Pearl Jansen, Miss Africa South, the black South African contestant because the white woman representing South Africa was called Miss South Africa, was the runner-up. She was the first black South African at the pageant. I'm sure you're wondering how Eric Gary is involved in all of this. Well, he was a last-minute addition to the voting panel, and when the premier of the country that ends up winning is on the voting panel, a lot of things are called into question. Funny enough, after Miss Grenada won, Gary's track record of corruption was brought up by persons a part of the Miss World organization. Still, members of the pageant resigned soon after as a result of intense media backlash. Years later, Marjorie Christel, Miss Sweden, who was the favourite going in, said she felt she was cheated out of the title. This whole event is dramatised in the 2020 film Misbehaviour, starring Kira Knightley as one of the leading feminists and Gugu Mbatha Raw as Jennifer Hosten, Miss Grenada. The writer of this episode, who had to sit down and watch the almost two-hour movie, says it's a good watch, so it has the tenement yard seal of approval. Nonetheless, Miss World 1970 was one of the first in a long list of events tied up in Eric Gehry's legacy. Between 1970 to 1974, Gary faced extreme opposition from a group of persons who were inspired by the explosive black power movement that took place in the Caribbean, a movement that has its roots in the 1968 Rodney riots that took place in Jamaica. In the next episode of our series, we go into the details of how the black power movement would inspire these groups of persons in Grenada. Still, the first sign in the public dismay over Gary was in November of 1970 when around 30 nurses took part in a peaceful demonstration where they brought to light the conditions of St. George's Hospital. A larger protest erupted when the nurses were then joined by school children, youth groups, members of the GNP and trade unions. Previously, Gary enacted the Emergency Powers Act in May of that same year and this gave the police a great amount of power. As such, Gary allowed for the police to tear gas, beat, and arrest the demonstrators. The 22 nurses would eventually be acquitted after being successfully defended by a group of lawyers, which included Kenrick Radix and Maurice Bishop. And in our next episode, we'll go into more detail about these two men. One thing that Gary's treatment toward the nurses did do, however, was allow for Grenadians to bear witness to the type of treatment he would bring towards anyone he saw as a threat to his power. Although having two groups under his control, the police and the army, which Grenadians called Green Beast, Gary then created secret police, the Mongoose Gang. It is said that the Mongoose Gang got its name in the 1950s when the local health officials sought to eliminate the Mongoose as a pest and paid people who brought in Mongoose tails as proof of killing the animals. 
The men who were employed in such work became known as the Mongoose Gang. Gloria Payne Banfield, Permanent Secretary for Planning in the Prime Minister's Office under Gary's administration, had this to say about the origins of the Mongoose Gang. Well, the Mongoose Gang was a very interesting group of people. Um, I was told that this was a group of men who perhaps were unemployed and they were given employment by the then um, head of the public health department. And because Mongoose had always been, um, you know, rampant in terms of, 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 of crops and, 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 and carrying rabies and all of that, there was always a, a thing about a, a program to eradicate Mongoose. And so these men were part of that group and and they went out trapping them and, and that's how they got their name as the Mongoose Gang. That word gang, so they became the Mongoose Gang then, working to, to eradicate Mongoose. And then, of course, they had some skirmishes with other groups. And so they went to the courts and so on. There were, when I say skirmishes, um, conflict, nothing to do with politics. And then they became supporters of, of Gary and um, it was claimed that he sent them to do things for him. Well, that again is debatable because while he may have sent them to do things for him, I'm sure there were other people who sent them to do things. They were generally um, people who would, you know. In contrast, however, Grenadian diplomat Caldwell Taylor said this in relation to the gang. You look at the, the Mongoose gang, and their job, as given by Gary, was to harass, intimidate, beat up, and murder anybody who was opposed to Eric Gary. Then Bertrand Pitt, friend of Eric Gary, who appeared in a documentary on Gary by Bev Sinclair, had this to say about the infamous Mongoose gang. So this mongoose gang they're talking about, trying to make it like the Tankar Maku in, <laughs> in Haiti. Gary had nothing to do with that. He tried to reach out to see if he could help these guys. But he's a fella he got involved. He got so involved with him, they all of them become familiar with him. When he go to dances, they all follow uncle, they want to kiss him and all them kind of thing. And then they start to misbehave. And instead of censoring them, he figure, well, these are my friends, they like it. I went up to him one day, I said, look, let me take care of these boys because I knew them in St. Davis and I had a different relationship with them than all of them. But he never agreed. And these boys, they, are, uh, they, they had access to his house. Which is, it's, it's, politicians in the Caribbean should study this situation. You have, when people are no good, you have to keep them away from your home and things like that. And eventually, they became uncontrollable. They, they're the ones that bring him down here because they did so much damn bad things and everybody put it on Gary. But he, he reached a stage where he didn't know how to handle it. Nevertheless, this did not go hand in hand with what Gary said about the group. For in 1970, during a radio broadcast, the premier confirmed the creation of the Mongoose Gang and had this to say. The opposition referred to my recruiting criminals in the reserve force. Does it not take steel to cut steel? I am proud of the ready response to my call on Grenadians, regardless of their criminal record, to come and join in the defense of my government and in the maintenance of law and order in their country. 
Regardless of the narrative of the formation of the Mongoose Gang, one cannot deny the influence Gary had over these men and how he encouraged their antics that took place in the country during the 1970s. Throughout the rest of this episode and the next, we'll go into more details about the gang's antics. Years later, social scientists of the Caribbean and the citizens of the region would compare the Mongoose Gang to another set of secret police, Haitian President Francois Duvalier's Tonton Makou. And if you know anything about Papa Doc's tenure in the 1960s as Haiti's dictator, the Mongoose Gang had to be very extreme to be compared to anything of that regime. In October 1971, Gary announced via radio the formation of a night ambush squad. Then in March of 1972, the Torchlight newspaper reported that gangs of GULP supporters were harassing and physically harming opposition supporters, while the police, when this was reported to them, did nothing. By the way, the GULP is the Grenada United Labour Party. According to David E. Lewis in his book, Reform and Revolution in Grenada, 1950-1981, this period in Grenada's political history saw the objective development of the capability of the power of repression which was invested in Gary's problematic regime. Still, this was 1972 and in that year we would see the passing of the Public Order Amendment Act, the Prevention of Crime and Offensive Weapons Act and the Explosives Amendment Act which were all created to restrict the freedom of Grenadians and give the police even more power to search a person's home without a warrant and ultimately to stop any credible opposition from being formed against Gary. But the power of repression was only going to get worse. Now here comes the 1972 election and one would expect that given all that had taken place with Gary and the rest of the population, surely he would lose come election time. However, that was not so. The Grenada National Party GNP, still the only credible opposition party to Gary's Grenada United Labour Party GULP up to that point, had many young supporters. Still Gary would end up winning the election with 58.8% .8 of the votes and gaining 13 out of 15 seats. According to historian Brian Meeks, the general perception was that there had been massive vote rigging. It should be noted that during the election cycle, Gary mentioned something of key importance, Grenada's independence from Britain. On February 21, a week before elections, Gary announced his intentions to put forward a proposal for the country's path to independence. But this talk of independence did not go down well with everyone on the island. A series of events would happen after and in the next episode we'll discuss that. So skipping ahead a bit, this will all make sense in the next episode, we promise. By late 1973, Gary found himself in deep problems. An island-wide strike made up of persons who were intent on removing him was taking place. These persons were dubbed the Committee of 22 and were made up of the Grenadian Union of Teachers, the Civil Service Organization, the Chamber of Commerce, the Churches, the Islands Rotary Club, and anti-Gary unions with the exception of GMMWU, of course. This strike, which started on November 19, was intended to bring those responsible for Bloody Sunday to be charged. It would eventually force Gary to appoint a commission to investigate the events of that dark day in Grenadian history, in a legal event now called the Duffus Commission. In the next episode, we'll take a look at this commission. 
Nevertheless, Gary did not take this seriously and the strike prolonged for another three months. For by this time, all the unions on the island joined in. Utility workers, commercial and industrial workers, and dock workers. Then, in a sea of chaos, on January 21, 1974, another event took place which would become known as Bloody Monday. And remember the young lawyer we spoke of earlier, Maurice Bishop? Yes, him. Well, Bloody Monday would be his villain origin story towards Gary. We're discussing Bloody Monday in future episodes, so stay tuned. After Bloody Monday, and with Grenada scheduled to be an independent country in February, Gary found himself in even more problems. The island-wide strike caused a tremendous economic fallout. It was so bad that even Gary's secret police were not getting paid. Gary reached out to Britain, but you should remember that by January 1974, Grenada, now an associate state, was weeks away from being an independent country. As such, Britain could not intervene in the internal affairs of the country. Nevertheless, the country gave £100,000 to the island as an independence gift, which was to be used to pay civil servants. Then, in a strong display of unity in the last two months of the strike, Jamaica, Guyana and Trinidad and Tobago gave $2 million worth of loans to Grenada. Another foreign entity stepped up and this was from the leadership of the Seaman and Waterfront Workers Union, SWWU. The powerful union would step in and order the dock workers back to work, just in time actually, for the island was running out of fuel. Another entity, the Caribbean Congress of Labour, CCL, would send in an official, Burns Bonardi, who served as a mediator between Gary and the unions. Therefore, what happened after was that the SWWU reopened the ports, subsequently ending the strike and saving Gary and his regime. Ironically, none of the demands of the strike were ever met by Gary, and in the middle of an island-wide shutdown, Grenada became an independent country on February 7, 1974. With Grenada's independence, Eric Gary was entitled to numerous honors and titles and it should come as no surprise but Gary accepted them all and even invented some of his own. He would attend functions decked out in his various ribbons and medals. Then after being knighted by the Queen of England in 1977, according to historians Catherine Sunshine and Philip Wheaton, Sir Eric Gary would begin functions with a lengthy prayer thanking God for himself. And on the topic of God, throughout the 1970s, Gary developed a sinister obsession with supernaturals. On numerous occasions, he stated that his rule was God's divine plan for Grenada's development. It was widely believed that Gary practiced obia and, in his own words, was of the mystical world. Caldwell Taylor had this to say. So Eric Gary projects himself as the only person that stands between God and Grenadians. He said several times that he was only answerable to God. He made the statement himself. And, and so people did not find it very easy to challenge a leader since the leader was God's representative on earth. He was ruling by divine right. Ladies and gentlemen, And therefore all questions relating to his his tenure of office relating to his abuses and so forth should not be directed to him, but indeed should be directed to God. Then there was the fascination with aliens. 
Gary was convinced that the objects he thought he was seeing were hostile alien aircrafts from outer space. In 1977 at a United Nations assembly, he made these discoveries well known. According to Gary in his ramblings to the delegates, Persons from outer space are studying us, or perhaps living among us as earthlings. Gary then called upon the UN to investigate this by forming an agency to research UFOs. Grenada's independence not only brought Gary even more power but more international connections. Grenada joined the United Nations and the Organization of American States OAS, and Gary would go on to forge relationships with fascist regimes. Notably, one of these regimes was with Chile where he made a state visit in 1976. Then in 1977, Gary signed an agreement for military training with Chile where two Grenadians went to Chile to learn torture techniques. Then in October of 1977, military planes from Chile flew into Grenada in the middle of the night with 34 boxes of medical supplies. According to historians Catherine Sunshine and Philip Wheaton, it's widely believed that these boxes contained arms. In 1979, Gary would seek modern arms to equip his armed forces, to which the High Commissioner replied, To shoot what with? Gary would then turn to Chile for assistance. This relationship and aid would lead to Gary parsing and defending the Pinochet regime of Chile. And in the middle of all this, Grenadians had to deal with news of Gary's numerous sex scandals that took place throughout the 1970s which were brought to light as it is said that he sexually exploited women who sought work in the public sector. Despite all of this, Gary would go on to win the 1976 election, winning only 9 of the 15 legislative seats. It should be noted that this election was shrouded in drama as Gary removed names of opposition supporters from the voters registration lists while permitting GULP supporters to vote multiple times. There was also the continuous crackdown on his opposition by the Mongoose gang and the police. In our next episode, we'll go into detail about the 1976 election. As the 70s rolled on, the Grenadian parliament became a caricature of the Westminster model. Gary took control over the Coca Board, the Grenada Nutmeg Association, and the Banana Cooperative Society and replaced their elective board with his own appointees. He then took lands from his opposition, which he turned into government farms, and ran them into a loss as a result of mismanagement. Acres of Grenadians' most valuable lands were sold and leased to foreigners by Gary. He even ran an international $500 a ticket scheme of which no prizes were ever awarded. He would then ban loudspeakers and prevent unions from communicating. In 1977, he refused to increase civil servants' pay, which was a recommendation by the Salaries Revision Committee. These salary increases ranged from 54% to 14%, and when the unions called for strike, Gary threatened the leaders' lives. By February of 1978, he passed legislation effectively taking away the right for workers from 11 service sectors to strike. Sadly, it was Grenadians who were feeling the brunt of this. Under Gary's leadership, it was one instance of hardship after the other. 
Wages for workers in retailing and manufacturing were 50 Eastern Caribbean dollars, EC dollars a month, while the government minister's salary was EC $2,000, and they paid no taxes. Unemployment reached 50%, food prices rose by 200%, clothing by 164%, and housing by 135%. Then when agricultural production dropped by 25%, Gary raised the taxes on imported goods like rice and flour while allowing import monopolies to his friends, which allowed them to charge scalpers prices. Then in the case of infrastructure, Gary did little. The island's road systems fell into despair. Medical care was low in quality and extremely expensive as local doctors were scarce. The few medical clinics on the island were unsanitary and ill-equipped. Then in education, no new schools were built during Gary's tenure. Primary school buildings deteriorated, teachers went untrained, while secondary schooling became a privilege and not a right. Gary then stopped paying Grenada's dues to the University of the West Indies and as such, citizens could no longer receive subsidized university training in the region. This is what world-renowned Grenadian diplomat, former Grenadian ambassador to the United States and OAS, Dr. Decima Williams had to say about this. Under Gary, there were roads in the hole rather than holes in the road. So bad was the situation. You know, to take a bus from Grenville to St. George's used to cost a laborer what that laborer would make in a day. Remember people coming down the road, either cursing or crying or, you know, in dismay from the kinds of lack of social services that there were in the country. People were taking out their teeth instead of having it repaired because to fill a tooth was so expensive. I remember the, the situation facing people for medical care, where people would go and sit for hours and hours and hours. With the Mongoose Gang in full effect, mysterious disappearances of its opposition, election fraud, continuous government corruption, and severe underdevelopment of the nation, Eric Gehry was soon to be compared to Uganda's Idi Amin. The country was on the brink of collapse and by the latter end of the decade, it was Eric Gehry versus the people of Grenada. Average citizens, the working class, the poor, the rural community, women, and other minorities were under immense pressure. Still, there's a popular saying in the Caribbean that pressure busts pipe. But pressure also makes diamonds, and a few young Grenadians were going to put this to the test. Would the pressure facing Grenadians bust pipe or create a new jewel? And with that, we call an end to today's episode. To view the sources used in this episode and our recommendations to learn more about the topic, visit our website at tenementyardmedia.com. A transcript of this episode will be available five days after it has been posted to podcast outlets. And remember, we'd love to hear from you. Follow our social media pages at tenementyard underscore on both Instagram and Twitter to view additional postings on this episode and updates on other content created by Tenement Yard Media. We're open to conversation about this and other episodes and all happenings around Caribbean history, politics and culture. Just a quick note before we leave, we're over on Patreon at patreon.com slash tenementyardmedia if you would like to support the show with a monthly donation of as little as $1. 
You can also make a donation of your choice at tenementyardmedia.com. Until next time, I'm your host Gabrielle and this has been Lest We Forget, a historical podcast from Tenement Yard Media. What good?